Hi, and welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast. I'm Ron Hogan, and I talk with memoir writers about their lives and about the art of writing memoir. And my guest today is Susanna Cahalan, and her memoir is Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness. It's published by Free Press, and welcome, Susanna. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Let's kind of, I guess, spoil the suspense a little bit, and um, let's tell people right off the bat, what is it that you were ultimately diagnosed with? I I was ultimately diagnosed with an autoimmune disease called anti-NMDA receptor autoimmune encephalitis, which, you know, to simplify it, is when your body attacks your brain. It took a long time for them to figure this out, not only because it was a rare autoimmune disorder, but because if you didn't know to look for it, it basically presented like you were having a nervous breakdown. Oh, yeah. I mean, the psychiatric kind of presentation was so robust that anything else kind of was, it was overshadowed by this kind of the, the hallucinations, the psychosis, all these things. How did the process start for you? Like, how does the story start for you of, of how this um, really flared up? Well, it, it all began very subtly and, you know, I started with, I thought I had bed bugs in 2009, three years ago. And at the point, I mean, you know, I, I say, you know, everyone thought they had bed bugs, you know, like this is not unusual. So it was, so it started then and I, I didn't, I didn't really think much of it. And then other kind of strange things happened. I, um, I had numbness in my, in my left hand, which was disconcerting. I became very lethargic, tired and sleeping a lot. I got a headache. I couldn't do my job. I just wouldn't show up for work. I took off days in a row, which I never even really took off a day before. And then I started becoming jealous with my boyfriend. Uh, I, I, I rifled through his things, convinced that he was cheating on me. All these behaviors were not normally part of who I was before. So they were uh, troubling. But uh, but again, it wasn't, I didn't say, oh, I'm going crazy. Or, you know, it just they were all, it just started happening very, it's almost like it just slide down, right? So then one day, kind of culminated one day when I went to the office at the New York Post where I worked. I went for an interview to interview John Walsh of America's Most Wanted. And I just botched the interview. I mean, I couldn't even follow, I couldn't even write down what he was saying to follow it. I was laughing inappropriately. I mean, I was, and then, and then after the interview, I, I was crying and I was laughing. I was happy. I was sad to the point where coworkers were so troubled that they wanted to be, they wanted to call my parents. As you're writing the memoir about this, you know, all of this stuff is stuff that you pretty much remember, mm-hmm. but there comes a point where in, in writing the story of what happens next, you essentially aren't really there to have witnessed it, even though it, it, it affected you. And let's talk a little bit about how you sort of like reconstructed, you know, the month of madness in the subtitle. You know, after this, that experience, I had a seizure um, at, at my apartment in Hell's Kitchen. I think that, that that's that moment for me where the memories go dark, really. And what I do remember are only hallucinations. Um, they're only self-generated imagery and this crazy paranoia. That's what I remember. Everything else this dark. So to actually be able to recreate that time, I really needed to kind of use my reporter's toolbox, you know. And, you know, luckily I've had my experience reporting before, so it made the process easier. It was still very difficult. So basically what I had to do is I started with the medical records. And using those medical records, I literally drew up a calendar. And I filled in every single piece of information I could for each day. So that, that's how I, I kind of just chronologically tried to get as much information as I could down about those days, objective 
information. So that's from the medical records, objective, right? And then from there, I started filling in subjectively with my parents' interpretation of what happened, my boyfriend's view of what happened, my friends, the nurses, the doctors. So kind of from there, I started kind of building my case as the best kind of version of what happened to me. As you're going through the medical records in the beginning and, and building up that objective record, I mean, you're, you're obviously having a subjective reaction to yes. it. And there are things in there like, you know, one of the first people to treat you after he examines you and, and interviews you, there's a scene where you leave the room and he talks to your parents and he basically says, she's a party girl going through alcohol withdrawal. You know, on top of, I guess, the, you know, sort of the emotional trauma of going through this disease in the first place. What's it like to sort of like, you know, to go back and to, to see these horribly off base interpretations of, of what was happening to you at the time. You know, it was, it was such a, it's such a bizarre experience. And I, I tried to divorce myself so much from that person. You know, that was a different self. That's what I like to look, I mean, that's how I was able to do this book because so, so many of the things I did are so awful. I mean, just terrible things that I did. You know, I mean, I, I hit, I hit and punched nurses. I, you know, yelled at people. I pushed an old lady. <laughs> like I was, I was acting horribly and to kind of read these things about myself and how I behaved. If I was too close to that person, it would have been impossible for me to write it. So I needed to kind of get that journalistic distance, but of course it's impossible to maintain that because you are reading at the end of the day, you're reading about yourself. So to kind of, to navigate through those medical records, it was it took a lot out of me. It was emotionally draining to kind of read those, and, it, and sometimes I was angry. Like for example, that same doctor that you mentioned, who said I I was partying too much, he told a doctor that I was drinking two bottles of wine a day when I told him I was drinking two glasses of wine a day. So it just you know that was enraging, and there were other examples of enraging moments, and then there were, I was angry at myself for. Not even angry at myself, but horrified by by what I was capable of. Interestingly enough, that same doctor, at the end of the story, uh, when you're going back and you're asking people, oh, well, what do you think now that you know that it's this condition? You know, it was really kind of striking that his reaction was, never heard of that. Yeah. yeah. We know what's amazing about that. Recently, and I'm going to try to keep it as vague as possible because his name is not the real name in the book, but he recently sent a girl who was in the psychiatric ward, to Dr. Najjar, who treated me, and said, it sounds like this disease that I read about. He didn't say he heard it. He's encountered it, but he said he read about it. So at least I think I reached him. I think I reached him. <laughs> now, I don't think he's going to say make the same mistake again, which, which makes me feel like I did my job. Let's talk about Dr. Najjar, who you just mentioned by name, because he is sort of like the real hero of this story. Let's talk about how he got on the case. Yeah, I mean, he's an incredible man. <laughs> I mean, just hands down. But so, you know, I was in the hospital. I'd been in the hospital for, I'd say, about two to three weeks at this point. Just to give some background, I, you know, I was I was violently psychotic for the beginning part of this day. You know, I was hitting and punching nurses, trying to escape, believing I was on the news. I thought I could age people with my mind. I mean, these kind of hallucinations, you know. But then as I stayed longer and longer, I was edging in towards catatonia. So I was no longer psychotic. But I couldn't read. I couldn't write. Hardly talk. I was drooling. No emotional register. Arms jut out like like a like Frankenstein. You know, it's strange, abnormal chewing with my mouth. So that was very scary because that was showing that the disease was progressing. Whatever disease it was, they didn't have an answer. So Doctor Najjar was actually called on to the case because he had a reputation for being this kind of man to go to when nothing made sense, and he had had some really really amazing victories over in, in earlier cases with, with with especially with children and young adults. 
And so he came on the case and he, he came in to, and again, this is totally reconstructed because I don't remember this, but he, he came into the hospital room and he was kind of the first doctor to sit down and take in all of the information, the bed bugs. I had high, high heart rate, the numbness, you know, all these things that, you know, a doctor would focus on one thing or the other, but he kind of put it together in one package. And then he asked me to draw a clock and, and that, that pen and paper test kind of became the key to the, everything. You write, forget whether it was like your reaction or, or one of your parents' reactions. It's like, it's like Dr. House had walked in. And, yeah. 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 My mom actually named him Dr. House because, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he's not, he's so lovely and just wonderful. You know, he's so warm, but that's part of, part of his charm. And I think part of the reason why he's such a great doctor is because he really cares and it comes across as very genuine, but he, you know, he's not like Dr. House in that way. He's not the yeah. mean curmudgeon, you know, mm-hmm. but he's brilliant. I mean, yeah. absolutely brilliant. And they, and they felt so capable in his hands. He looked at them after he had me draw that clock and he kind of made these, all these different connections in his own mind to think, okay, this might be actually an autoimmune disease. And he, he said to them, he brought them out of the room and he told them her brain is on fire. He said, I mean, very simply, but those words, I mean, so the title of my book, but you know, he told them straight again, this, this, her brain is on fire. And they knew at that moment they were in some the right capable hands to lead them towards that eventual diagnosis. And I know just hearing, even though that's terrifying to hear something like a brain is on fire. I mean, it's terrifying. They had a sense of relief because they knew they were headed towards an answer. And at that point, there was still a question of, is this a psychiatric disease? Let's talk a little bit about the, the autoimmune disorder that you had and just how rare a condition it is. Yeah, I mean, at, at that point when I was diagnosed, I was the 217th person to ever be diagnosed with it. But that being said, I think it's rare, but I think it's highly undiagnosed. So, you know, doctors actually believe it's been around for centuries, possibly as long as man has been around. And they actually think that it might be the cause of demonic possession throughout history. As we, we talked about at the beginning, the way it presents is to, um, you know, to someone who doesn't know what to look for it does look like a breakdown or if your framework is for demonic possession, that it's going to look like a demonic possession, that it's kind of indistinguishable from those conditions unless you know that it's a possibility. Oh, yeah. I mean, I gr- I'm grunting. You know, these strange guttural noises are coming from me. You know, I, I'm, you know, when Stephen witnessed my seizure, I'm staring straight ahead. You know, he thought I mean, my eye, my head might as well have turned around. You know, I, I've talked to many people who've gone through this illness and they tell me stories about how they've called out for a priest because they had a demon inside them. I mean, they literally, I didn't have, I don't have a religious background. I didn't go there. That That's not where I went. But people who have religion in their history you know, that, that's part of their psyche that might come out during that time. I, there was a girl, I saw a video of a girl who believed that she was Jesus and that she, you know, she was looking at a light and she had a camera and she was focusing the light in the camera and she was, that was the world and she was Jesus. I mean, you know, it, when you, when you start speaking like that, you realize well, this, this might be explaining a lot of bizarre behaviors throughout history. Circling back to, to your parents and, and your boyfriend and their sort of perspective on what was happening, you talk about as you're in the reconstructive process that, and even if you, even if you weren't writing about this, you know, just as a person trying to talk about this with your parents, it was a very difficult thing to even sort of talk about it with them, oh, uh, yeah. that, that they were very reluctant to sort of like go back and revisit that period. Yeah, and in different ways, too, because they're very different people. So my mom, for example, when I was interviewing her about this, she had rewritten history. So in her mind, I was never that bad. I was never going to die. You know, there was never there was never this fear. I was, we were always going to be fine. I literally had to bring my medical records to her 
you know, these objective documents and say, look, this is what they said. This, this is how bad my cognitive impairment was at that time. And it was only then that the kind of wheels went back and she went back to those memories and she was able to kind of talk about it. I had to actually prove to her that I was bad. My father, on the other hand, didn't want to talk about it with me on the phone. He couldn't with me. So we emailed back and forth. And I actually, he, he kept a journal during that time, which I was able to kind of use as well. So between the emailed questions that he would write back to me and the journal, that was kind of his way of, of dealing with it because he couldn't talk to me about it. After the diagnosis and, and as you were sort of making your way back, I mean, one of the things that they had said, the doctors, uh, was that, you know, you were probably never going to be like 100% back. But, the, you know, it was probably somewhere in like the, the 90s. And you, I mean, you talked before about, you know, having to look at the the woman who went through this condition as, you know, a different self. So I, I guess I'm wondering, like, you know, what you feel you, in terms of the relationship between the person you are now and the person you were before everything happened. I mean, do you feel like that person sort of like interrupted or do you really feel like this is kind of more profoundly altered who you are? Such a good question, and it's such a hard one to answer. I mean, I think I think something profound happened to me, and I think that I'd be foolish to say it didn't change me. But I I do break my life up into pre and post now. It was pre illness, post illness, and that pre illness self does seem a lot different. I don't know how to verbalize how she's different and how I am different now. And there are a lot of other functions. You know, I'm older now than I was then. I'm in a different situation. I'm, I'm in a long-term relationship. Different life circumstances change you too, but obviously something as dramatic and important as this is, and it definitely changed me. It just putting my finger on exactly how I've changed is, is very hard. In trying to tell the story, this actually started out, the, the Post asked you to, mm -hmm. uh, to, to tell this story as a feature. Mm -hmm. And what was the process like of taking that feature and feeling like there's more here to tell. There's like a book's worth of story to tell here. When I got assigned that, first of all, I wasn't back to I, who I am now. And I had I had less than a week. I had Tuesday. I was assigned on Tuesday, and I had to deliver it by a Friday. So I did as much as I could in that period of time to try to understand what had happened. But what that revealed to me was how little I really knew. So that basically just bursted me wide open. I said, okay, wow, I really have no idea what happened. And it was almost only then when I wrote that piece that I kind of become say, well, there's way more to this story than I initially thought. Yeah. And then, and then the response I got after when I, when I, after that story ran made, made it even more important for me to write the book. Was it something that you had felt like, you know, I could do a book here or did people come to you and say, you know what, you should turn this into a book? I wanted to write the book. Uh, I felt for two reasons. First of all, I, I wanted the opportunity to understand what had happened and to take control over what had happened. It's almost like take control over that narrative. This horrible thing happened to me, but I can, I can understand. I can almost read, I can write it, you know, I can, I can make it my own. And then I also, after the post read, I got hundreds of emails from people who had either gone through a similar thing or were maybe thought they had, I realized this is a story that needs to be told too, not only to help myself, but to help other people. And it did, it has helped other people. And you know, at the end of the day, you know, you become a journalist for a variety of reasons. And I think primar primarily you, you start to try to help people. Right. And I think in this case, I can actually say that, that I did that. Were there other memoirs that you sort of looked at as you were trying to figure out like, yeah, how, as we set mentioned at the beginning, mm -hmm. You know, how to tell a story in which you know, you just were not there 
for that amount of time and had to reconstruct it from outside sources. Oh, yeah, there, there were plenty. There were a lot I've read. Uh, there's this book called The Journey Around My Skull, which is about a playwright in the early 1900s who had a brain tumor. And uh, one day he's sitting in a cafe and he hears a train go by and there's no train there. And it's he it's a visceral scene about getting brain surgery back then, and he was kept awake during it. I mean, it's a fascinating first person. And that was kind of like, the, I think, the first of the real illness-sickness memoir genre, if you would call it that. Um, but Girl Interrupted was really important to me, and um, I especially how she included her medical records in it. And I thought, you know, I, that is important because I wanted to show, they, I mean, my first draft had a medical record on every page. Just to say, this, these are the these are the primary documents here. Uh, I, I toned it down for the final version of it, but that that was important. Girls' Rep was very important to me, and Joan Didion's all of Joan, Joan Didion's work was important to me. But the Year of Magical Thinking, just her own investigation of the self, was just beautifully done. And I mean, I read that several times. I, I wouldn't say it was an inspiration because it's so <laughs> incredible, but that that was that was those books were really important to me. During during and the night of the gun as well. That was because that was a whole thing about investigating and memory and and the problem the problem of that. So there there were a bunch of books that inspired me. And it sounds like in the process from the first draft to the final draft that uh, the editing process was a was a big help in sort of like shaping oh, yeah. the narrative to where it needed to be. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, my first draft was very science heavy. I didn't want to write a memoir. I was pushing against that. I, I just, I think I wasn't ready maybe. And I had needed to be pushed that in, the, in that direction. And my, and my, I had two editors, actually one who left Hillary Redmond, who's excellent and beautiful with the science and helped me with the science. It was wonderful. And then I had another Millicent Bennett who has edited my book, the final version, who is, has a background in fiction and was able to make it a real, help me make that a real story. So the combined forces of them, I think it really, really made the book a better book than I could ever be capable of doing by myself. I think in this sort of case, the chances of you having another profound experience of, of this scale, you know, that might not necessarily be down the line. But I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> but as a reporter, as a mm -hmm. journalist, as somebody who does find the narratives in other people's lives on a regular basis, do you, having one book under your belt now, feel like, yeah, I could do this. I could do this with some, you know, I could find somebody else's life that is as compelling or as information that needs to get out in the, in the sense that you were hoping that this book would, would do for other people. Do you see that happening? I hope so. I do. I mean, I, I kind of have the bug. Like, I think it's like, you know, everyone always say writing a book is like giving birth. And I think you forget how hard the process is and you kind of idealize the whole thing after the fact. You know, now I'm, I'd love to be back in the trenches writing and, you know, immersed in a subject that I love again. It, and, and, I, and I think I could do it again. You know, it's, it's definitely not an easy process, but it's, it's, it's so fulfilling. And in the meantime, you're you're back to feature writing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how's that going? It's it's going well. I mean, I, I you know I, I I love books. I do a lot. I do I write a lot about books, and that just it's, that's wonderful. I love being a part of that community, and I love reading, and I love learning new stories, and talking to authors, and talking about the process. So it's it's really a great place to be. Fantastic. We have been talking with Susanna Cahalan about her memoir, Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness. It's just been published by the Free Press, and you should check it out. This has been Life Stories, and I'm Ron Hogan, and I hope you'll look for another Life Stories podcast on Beatrice.com soon. Thanks. <laughs>